Think about the chaos that would ensue. Because you have no trouble making stupid sounds out of your mouth. And a drunk, cancerous Brit. Are you wearing shoes now? I thought it would be good that we should all try to steal something. I couldn't have dreamt up a better segue. Hello, everyone out there in podcast land. Yowza, gowza, bowza, schnauza. This is another edition of Smart Drivel with your host, Kurt Schneider and... John Ellenthal. Do you make those up you know, in advance or do they just come out when you start to speak? It's amazing. They just come out when I speak. I would have bet it 90-10 that way. So that's good. I think I would have been bad at beatboxing. For any particular reason? Uh, <clears throat> just not good at it. Okay, because you have no trouble making stupid sounds out of your mouth. So I'm and not sure why. You have to have rhythm. It has to mean something. And I have none of that. I was at an event once, Kurt, where they had a bit of a medical health bent to it. And they had a beatboxer as a guest and they dropped a camera down so that you could see what was happening with his vocal cords and all that kind of stuff. And I think a lot of things that are happening down there, you probably could anticipate. There's a lot of action, a lot of moving. In and around the epiglottis or the uvula. uvula. Careful. <laughs> now let's get into today's topic, John. I can't wait. So today, I thought we'd talk about underrated inventions throughout time. These should all be appreciated, but they're underrated, yeah? All right, so we're not talking about things like the wheel or fire or antibiotics or electricity, but these are the ones that... Those are all highly rated, yeah. They are, they are. Those are the, that's sort of the star turn of the invention class. Yeah. So let's agree up front to some criteria that we can use so we can stay focused on the right ones. It's good because so, we always stay in the lanes, so that's good. All right, let's at least have some starting criteria so that we can know when we're crossing the lines. So it's something particularly valuable. I don't mean that in monetary terms, but it matters to human life. Does, as you pointed out, doesn't get the airtime or love that it deserves. And lastly, it would be hard to imagine life without these things. Does that work for you? Fantastic. You want to kick us off? Sure. I have a list because it was so much fun getting excited when we talked about this idea. So I have a list. Okay. I'm not sure the pronunciation of this. I actually had to look up the pronunciation. The aglet. Well, that's so undervalued that I don't even know about it. What is the aglet? The aglet, A-G-L-E-T. It is the sheath around the end of your shoelaces, be it in plastic or metal. Oh. That allows your shoelaces to go through the hole and it therefore can stay tied up. The aglet. Is aglet the plural noun or is it aglets, aglet? I believe you have two aglets if you have two pairs of shoes or two, okay. two strings. But if you have two pairs of shoes, I think you have eight aglets, two per shoe. I Correct. I think it's underrated because you need this. Yeah. But it's appreciated because, boy, do we like it when we can get tie up those shoes or shorts or whatever. Okay. So let me stay in the footwear-esque category for one. Right and left shoes. Shoes made for your right foot and shoes made for your left foot. Do you know that it wasn't until the early 1800s that an inventor in actually a cobbler in Philadelphia, I think his name was William Young, began making discreetly different left and right shoes for his customers. Before then, shoes were straight. 
And you know how some shoes can be hard to break in, but can you imagine trying to break in a pair of shoes that were basically both just straight? You know what? I'm with you. Are you wearing shoes now? I am wearing flip-flops now. Okay. Are they made for your left and right foot or are they just both straight planks? No, thankfully, they're made for both and I'm very appreciative thereof. There is some evidence that ancient Romans did create differentiated shoes for their soldiers. But I'm talking about the mainstream mass population left and right footed shoes, Kurt. Well, those soldiers did a lot of walking and hiking all over the world. So I think that they would need that. That would be an invention. I'm wondering why it didn't make its way to the masses. That's a good question. And there isn't complete agreement that the ancient Romans had. Do you know the ancient Roman singer, I forgot her name, who said those shoes were made for walking? (laughs) Yes, I think it was uh, Nancy Sinatra. Something like that. It sounds like we're starting at the bottom of the body and moving up. Well, can we stay with sort of clothing or attire or something before we jump off? Absolutely. Very valuable. Uh, I forgot your other two things. Can't live without underwear. Okay, so what's the background on underwear? So you're, you're not part of the commando movement. I am not. And by the way, there's been further inventions, right, with the sports bra or the boxer brief. I think it's an ability to have more support underneath. But I think in the beginning, it was done, A, for comfort, but B, you didn't wash your clothes that often and they got stanky. And if you wanted to keep your parts not as stanky, you had underwear. But funny enough, I think the funniest story ever without underwear was the Battle of Agincourt. Which loosely translates to the battle without underwear? (laughs) Well, what happened was it was Henry V against the French, 100 years war. English are coming over there. They don't stand a chance. Henry V gave the big St. Crispin's feast, band of brothers, you know, talk to rally the guys. Got them in there, shot the longbow, right? I think we've talked about this. The guys shot the longbow. And they were totally outnumbered, the British. The French were stronger, big equipment. And here's what happened. The British shot longbows and would kill the French. If the French ever caught the British doing it, they'd chop off their two fingers. And in Britain, we put our two fingers up to say, screw you. And in America, we short-circuited to just one. But two, you, two up means, but that, that's apart from the point. The point was they're fighting and the French were so much better and they're stuck in the mud though because they're in a valley and it starts raining and they're in huge armor and they're on horses. Well, the British soldiers drunk with, because they had, they had no rations, so all they had was alcohol, drunk without armor. And here's the thing, they all had dysentery. So they all were going to the bathroom nonstop. So they decided to drop their pants and their trowel, their underwear, because it didn't mean anything to them. And they went naked from the bottom down and clubbed to death the French. So imagine this. You're a wonderful French fighter in all your armor. You're sitting on your horse and a drunk, pantsless Brit without anything else comes and clubs you to death. Underwear, John. Underwear. I couldn't have dreamt up a better segue than that story. Nor could I have anticipated that as a segue for what I'm going to raise next. Kurt, let me ask you a personal question, if I could. When was the last time you went to the bathroom? Uh, This morning. I bet you were pretty happy to have the benefits of modern toilet paper, were you not? Very happy, yes. So do you know what people used before there was toilet paper? Their left hand, John. Which is one of the major reasons we shake right-handed. Correct. They used, we did use our hands, typically our left hands. 
We also use leaves or moss, rags, corn cobs, shells. In ancient Rome, they actually used, in public toilets, there was a sponge on a stick that sat in a bucket of salt water. The only problem is that sponge was for common use. You didn't have your own sponge. No, you share it. Right. It's communal. Did you ever see a copy of the Farmer's Almanac? Yeah. Do people use that? They did. But there's a really interesting story about the Farmer's Almanac. The publishers even drilled a hole in the upper left corner of every issue so that it could hang on a nail in the outhouse so it would serve as both entertainment and toilet paper when the time came. Similar, by the way. Recycling before recycling. It, I think that's multi-purpose more yes. than recycling. If they if they used it and reused it, I think that's more in the vein of recycling. But hey, we're not here to quibble. Another publication which was quite popular because it had it was voluminous in page count and was free was the Sears Roebuck catalog. Was a very popular early form of toilet paper in the outhouse. So toilet paper was invented, and then it went through all sorts of improvements to have what we have today. You could actually get splinters from toilet paper in the early 1900s. But this morning, when you were having your Charmin moment, I doubt you felt any risk of a splinter. No, and I was very happy for the softness and the single-use nature of it. Well, as this conversation once again proves, at Smart Drivel, we promise the drivel and hope for the smart. And we also hope that you'll reach out to us on Twitter at Smart Drivel uh, or on Instagram and tell us what you think about the things we're discussing. Kurt and I would absolutely love to hear from you. So continuing on that, I think perfume or cologne is a wonderfully great invention that doesn't get its just due. We think of it now as just, oh, you smell nice. But I believe that it was done because people only bathed once a year, John, or maybe twice a year, and they stunk. So it was a way to cover it up by putting on this eau de whatever they could find back then. In fact, I believe that is why brides to this day carry flowers when they go down, because the tradition was if the smell of the flowers covered the stank of the people. And so you actually could attract your mate one way or the other by having the flowers in front of both of you. You know what I just thought of, actually? The expression, which I know you know, and I know you know why, where this came from, but it makes sense. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yes. They only bathed once a year, John. The baby probably went last. Yeah. And the color of the water by then. You couldn't see the baby so easily. Opaque. Couldn't see the baby. Yeah. Little, uh, little agua opacity issue. Yes. Exactly. So it's the early 1980s, Kurt. You're in high school. You're coming of age. Your body chemistry is changing. Hell, your body is changing. Tell me about a time when you slather on a bunch of Ralph Lauren polo cologne and went out seeking a good time. See, I didn't. You know why? Because you bathe regularly? I did. And I used Old Spice deodorant. The two together was enough for me, or so I thought. And you, Maybe my life would have been different. How did you choose Old Spice? Was it the old commercials where the burly Irishman took out his pen knife and cut into the bar of Irish Spring? It was, uh, and I have to admit this now on the podcast, it was the Adirondacks 1970. I can smell the pine needles already. Maybe 1976, 77. Right be, a couple of years before we would try to get Matt's beer balls and drink. Oh, my God. I love Matt's beer balls. 
and fantastic. We had, when my parents moved out of their house, I think they had six or seven old Matt Spear balls they found in the attic that my brother and I he said, we're going to make lamps out of these. Let's save them. Anyway, we were in a tiny town called Scroon Lake and there was a Grand Union supermarket. And one of the people in our gang of people up there, kids, thought it would be good that we should all try to steal something. So I don't know why or how I chose Old Spice, I think, because it was a small round thing and I pilfered it from Grand Union. I'm sorry, Grand Union. I owe it to you for this. Why don't you send them a Whatever check? After, that, using it. Why don't you send them a check after? You know, I think the folks at Old Spice who work on brand marketing, when they're thinking about how to engage the younger population in their brand, they probably never considered promoting shoplifting. Affordability. Yeah. Imagine a commercial along those lines. So that's an unusual way to hook a customer on the brand, but you've been a multi-decade long customer, so whatever works. I don't I know that I've ever worn cologne. And unless I'm walking through these things we used to have called department stores, where you would be inadvertently spritzed by some nice person who was paid to be friendly and spritz things on you. But I've never been a big lover of that. Now, the smell, as long as it's subtle, because it is so easy to go too far and that just kills me. It's hard to breathe, gives you a headache. You weren't a Drakkar Noir fan? Not surprisingly, I was not. So I'm with you as long as there's a very light touch. It doesn't have the same, we don't have the same practical needs we had when perfume was first created. So I think we need to take it easy. And when you meet someone who hasn't taken it easy, that is a repellent, which is quite the opposite of what perfume and cologne are intended to be. Well, then it sticks in your olfactory memory. And for the rest of the day, all you can smell is what you smelled. I know that smell. And that, and again, a big thing to brand marketers, which is why we have those scent strips in magazines and things. None of those magazines, by the way, have a little hole in the upper corner so that you can hang them on a nail in your house or any one of your outbuildings. In any well, we event. We used to have those books, scratch and sniff books. Remember those? I love those. That was pretty much my reading level. That and pop-up oh, books. And Richard Scarry with all the little pictures. Uh, I didn't, of, all the you know little... What, of all the books we read to our kids when they were young, when they asked for a Richard Scarry book, I was like, oh, I said that to myself, hopefully not to them, because there were so many words on every page. It took a long time to get through a Richard Scarry children's book. Really? Unless I'm thinking of a different one. Yeah. Huh. Uh, I thought it were just drawings, a lot of drawings. I found them to be a little too content packed. And when it's time for cute. When it's time for a bedtime story, you sort of want to breeze through it, you know, see, spot, run kind of approach to content. All right, Kurt. So perfume and cologne. I will stick to things we put on our body in an effort to try to be somewhat linear here, which is, I think that this one is probably a little bit less underrated than some that we've mentioned, but nowhere near getting its due. Kurt, do you wear eyeglasses? I do. Kurt, are you wearing eyeglasses right now? I'm wearing contact lenses right now, but I have to wear eyeglasses to see my writing. Okay, so you once on a previous podcast took the rather absurd and edge position that 36% of Americans did not believe that we actually landed on the moon. Instead, it was a concoction from some soundstage as part of some sort of conspiracy theory. And 87% do not believe in eyeglasses. Okay. So what percent, you're so good at guessing numbers, or I find it so much fun when you guess at numbers, what percentage of American adults do you think wear, have eye correction? I want to include the contact lenses, have some sort of vision correction. 
Does this include? By the way, whatever. Reading go ahead. Glasses. Yeah, some sort of some sort okay. of correction. Look, you're going to say you're crazy, but I, oh, you know the answer. I'm going to say eighty-three percent. John, lock it in. All right, judges. So that was both an excellent guess on the merits and an excellent guess for you. So you win on two counts. I know that that's quite popular, but seventy-five percent of American adults have some sort of eye correction. 64% of the 75 wear eyeglasses and the balance, the 11% remaining, wear contact lenses. Can you imagine all of the people, three quarters of adult Americans who need some sort of eye correction not having it and how that would affect their ability to work, their ability to drive, their ability to read, their ability to learn? That would be a serious damper on the quality of their life and the productivity of our economy. If three quarters of adults were somehow limited because of our inability to correct their vision. So that's what you're saying is the underrated invention. Yes, something that three quarters of the American, and it's a proxy for the rest of the world, rely on that doesn't quite get up there with all of the major inventions. Think about the chaos that would ensue if we did not have that. And also think about in Darwinian, you know, survival of the fittest, 75% of the population would be killed. Because they couldn't make it through. I could not. My eyes are so bad, John. If I lived in a world without eye correction, I would not make it. I would be one of the Darwinian losses. Mine eyes have seen the glory. What did you call kids in school, on grade school, who wore glasses? Of course, four eyes. That's right. So there has long been a stigma attached to wearing glasses, an unhelpful perception that somehow people with glasses are weak or passive or in some way lesser than. And it was uh, one of the people, one of the famous people who was given credit for helping to turn the perception, although not in time for the kids you tormented in grade school, was your buddy, Teddy Roosevelt, who was almost always photographed with his spectacles on. Around then, they were actually called medical appliances, which is not a high fashion term. I have a great story about Teddy Roosevelt and his eyeglasses. This would be the right time, Kurt. Oh, yes. Yeah, this is the right I time. I don't have to say something like, by the way, and just jump into it. Or just burst out in the middle of one of my sentences. So, Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy was not only very exuberant about life and everything, but he also had this issue, especially since he was a sickly kid, that he needed to prove himself and prove his manhood and prove everything. And he actually also carried the burden around forever that his father did not fight in the Civil War because his mother was from the South and begged him not to partake. So he actually felt terrible that his father didn't fight. So when he was itching for a battle, so when we had the Spanish-American War and they were fighting in Cuba against the Spaniards and the Battle of San Juan Hill, he was leading the Rough Riders. What he brought up with him 16 pairs of glasses, John. Do you know why? Because some of them were for his horse. No, he said, if one breaks, I'll have another one. I'm not coming down from this just because my glasses. So he brought 16 pairs in case he was breaking them. He was putting it back on. It was the precursor of the disposable contact lens, I guess. So I did not know until this conversation how important Teddy Roosevelt has been to the mainstreaming and acceptance and wiping away of the stigma of wearing glasses, which is good since three quarters of us wear glasses. So thank you. He also has, he had pince-nez, they called them. 
please tell me and everybody else listening what pince-nez is. Pince-nez are glasses without the Arm? arms that go back around your ears. They pinch uh, on your nose, pince-nez, and they sort of come down. And that's what Teddy wore a lot. Not the monocle like Mr. Peanut. I happen to think glasses are great. And in fact, I was watching The Name of the Rose the other day. And in it, the hero who's an English friar, Franciscan friar in the 1300s, had friend had made for him these things that were huge glass things out of concrete like glass John, big. that allowed him to see. And they were and it was a curiosity because no one knew what these things were. Yeah, well, they've been around for hundreds of years. Uh, there's not a clear cut when glasses, eyeglasses were invented, probably in the 1300s, but it's a big deal. It's a big deal in my life, uh, as well as my and our family. Main man, our main man, Ben Franklin, sorry, also was a big part of that. Ben Franklin clearly needed correction. So, Well, he invented the bifocal, John. I remember the cartoons where he invented you know, electricity and the kite and the key and bifocals and the country. Bifocals. It was a very busy episode. There is a part of the world that leads the league in short-sightedness, where 44% of the population, almost half of the population is short-sighted. And short-sightedness, yeah. along with astigmatism and, I guess, far-sightedness, are the other things that need correction. Japan, Singapore, and Taiwan, 44% incidence of short-sightedness. I only mean that in, in a vision sense. I'm not thinking, I'm not commenting on their way of life, their point of view, their belief system. I just mean ophthalmologically. All right, Kurt, your turn. Say something interesting. The Arnold Palmer. <laughs> I love Arnold Palmer's. Just scrapes in above the, that's an important invention. It's valuable and everyone loves it. It just doesn't get, it's not highly rated. 20 years ago, the Arnold Palmer was a bit of a fascination where Someone at your party at a table would order the Arnold Palmer. Other people would go, what's that? They go, I'd like that. And everyone did love it. Now you see it bottled. So if you go to the beverage refrigerator at a gas station, you're going to find not by the name Arnold Palmer, but you're going to find half iced tea, half lemonade. So I think it's clearly on the upswing. And Arnold Palmer, not the golfer, but the drink, is having its day right now. Like what you did there, upswing. You're on it today. You know what? I'd love to tell you I did that on purpose, but that would be dishonest. So think about this for a second, Kurt. Arnold Palmer was one of the greatest golfers of all time, yet he'll be remembered by some as the guy who figured out how to mix iced tea and lemonade. It's a lot like Tommy John. Tommy John was a really successful major league pitcher. He won like 280-something games, you know, which has to be top 50 all time. Yet he'll be remembered for being the first pitcher to have elbow reconstruction surgery, which is now named after him, Tommy John surgery. It's got to be weird to be remembered for something that was so derivative to what you actually spent your life accomplishing. Love that. You know what they call a John Daly? Yeah. What drug or alcohol do you put in an Arnold Palmer? It's an Arnold Palmer plus vodka. Yeah, that makes sense. So when John Daly was becoming a thing back in the early 90s, he won a big tour event early in, in his PGA career, and he was a giant hitter. Big. I was living in Memphis, Tennessee at the time. And do you know where John Daly was from? Memphis, Tennessee. Yes, Kurt. I'm on it today. You're on it today. So he was a particularly big deal in Memphis media circles because he was successful and he was um, unusual and he was larger than life in so many ways. And no one who was writing about him then would be surprised that he is now the namesake of a drink with vodka in it. By the way, he was kind of the Roscoe Tanner of golf. Remember Roscoe Tanner in the 70s in tennis? 
Huge serve. Not much else, but huge, huge serve. Boom! Kurt, you probably have been to a professional tennis match since you have a long career in the world of professional sports. How close have you ever been to an actual match? Do you not find it funny when people go to tennis matches dressed in tennis whites? Yeah, but it is funny, but is it any different than going to a football game dressed in a football jersey like they're going to put you in, coach? Right. You're that's like, what's you're showing you're your not... affinity. But it is funny. I, I agree with I, you. I, I guess so. If you went yes, to, I have been up close. If you went to a football game, maybe wearing shoulder pads and stuff, that would be that would be analogous. But these people are decked out completely in whites top to bottom. So I, and they're not getting it. Anyway, that is, I have. That is a funny you, aside. You realize, especially, at, well, in both of them, what athletes these people are. Holy, that ball goes so fast yeah. and is hit so hard. That's why I brought it up because there's a, back in when I was in Memphis, to stick with the Memphis period of this podcast for me, there's a local tennis club that was the host for a small tennis tournament every year. And the finals were played in its tiny little center court, which probably had seats that went six or seven rows back. So everybody was in the match. And the finals the year I went to was Jimmy Connors and Goran Ivanisevic. Oh, yeah. And Goran was a big server, like you just mentioned. And I could, I was awed and stunned by the power of his serve. And I have no idea how Jimmy Connors returned any of his serves. And the match was actually a wonderful match. It went the distance. Jimmy Connor actually won. He never, I, he finally broke serve very at the end of the match. And it was during the time that Jimmy Connors was doing commercials for Nuprin. So every time mm -hmm. even Isovich hit one of these smashes at him, the crowd would yell, Noop it, Jimmy, Noop it. I don't know what the top speed on serves is today, but back then, even Isovich was like you know, 120 something miles an hour. Crazy. Insane. So, Kurt, unfortunately, we've run out of time for this week's episode. Oh, John, we have so much stuff. Clearly, we have a lot more we want to say on this topic. So I think what we're going to do is we're going to stop here and call this not the end, merely the end of part one of our podcast on underrated inventions. And we'll be back next week with part two, the rest of our conversation on inventions that just deserve a lot more love. It could be, you mean like the sequel, which is something that's an underrated invention? Well, this is a, Godfather this is, 2, though. Well, Godfather 2 was wonderful. I mean, right. many so it wasn't people underrated. It won. Yeah. Yeah. So listen, we next week we'll have the Godfather 2 to our Godfather 1 this week. We might as well compare what we're doing here to what many people believe to be the greatest movies ever made, because that's an appropriate bar for us. In any event, we will be back next week with part two thank you for joining us for part one we hope to have you back here next week thank you very much thank you goodbye everyone